Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. In 1960, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, one of the shameful tragedies of our nation is that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours in America. Dr. King was saying that our churches are segregated. Obviously, he was speaking specifically about racial segregation, but unfortunately, his words ring just as true regarding segregation around age, class, sexual orientation, lifestyle, and background. We are segregated, and we have been that way not just since 1960, but for years and years before that, and it wasn't just true in 1960. It is still true today. According to research done in 2015, This continues to be the case in the modern church. Most 21st century churches are homogenous in basically every way. And the research also shows that the vast majority of church members don't want things to change. We are comfortable in our segregation. We have found ease in our uniformity. This is shocking and it's tragic for a number of reasons, but chief among them is just how contrary uniformity is to God's intention for the church. You see, uniformity is not how the church started and uniformity is not how the church will end. The New Testament shows us that the first church was the most radically diverse group of people the world had ever seen up until that point. They brought together men and women, old and young, slave and free, rich and poor, citizens and immigrants, people of every race, class, lifestyle, and background. And for the first time in recorded history, these radically different people all stood together on equal footing as a part of the same family. This was so radical, in fact, that first century historians tell us that the Roman government officials, the ones who ruled over that part of the world at the time, were totally baffled by the first church. They had no idea how this incredible, incredibly diverse group of people came together, much less why they loved one another and treated each other as equals. That's how the church started. Now listen, here's how the church will finish. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. That verse is a description of what life will look like when Jesus returns to finish his mission of restoration and make all things new. So if diversity is how the first church was, and diversity is how the last church will be, why are the vast majority of churches today choosing to segregate ourselves? We do it because it's easier. Most churches and even most denominations have settled on segregation because it's just easier It's easier to be around people who look and think and act like we do. We have traded unity for uniformity. And I believe that it is breaking the heart 
of God. This morning, we're in the final week of our teaching series called Going Public, about the part of Jesus' story where he transitions from leading a very private life to leading a very public ministry. So far in this series, we've looked at Jesus preaching his first sermon, recruiting his first followers, and even defining his mission. And today, we wrap up this series by looking at Jesus finalizing his team, his hashtag squad, as the kids would say. In the Bible, they are simply called the disciples. Jesus' team would go on to be the founders and leaders of the first church we just talked about. And it's not even a slight exaggeration to say that God used this incredibly diverse group of people to change the world. You and I, we are a part of the church today because of what Jesus did in and through these men and women 2,000 years ago. So, who were they? Who were the disciples? Well, when we hear people talk about Jesus' disciples, we most often think of the dozen guys referred to as the twelve. Right after the big party at Matthew's house that we covered last Sunday, Jesus chooses these twelve guys. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. Remember that. We're going to come back to the Zealot in just a second. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. But it wasn't just the 12 who were Jesus' closest followers and friends. There was also a group of women. Luke chapter 8, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, we just talked about, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, also remember that. We're going to come back to that in a second. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So these men and women traveled everywhere with Jesus during his three years of ministry. As Bonnie mentioned a couple of weeks ago when she was preaching, this was the model for rabbis during the time. Rabbi is just a, a word basically for Jewish religious teachers. So they would recruit a group of people to apprentice under them. And these apprentices would go with them anywhere that they went, learn from them. This recruiting usually took place at the temple where rabbis and the young men seeking to become apprentices, they spent most of their time there at the temple. So when the time came for a rabbi to choose his apprentices, his disciples, he would pick from the best of the best, the most pious, the most well-versed in the Jewish scriptures, the best family lineage, and so on and so forth. The rabbis would then train their disciples through extended times of lecture and study. But you see, Rabbi Jesus recruits and trains his disciples in a completely different way. He doesn't do it at the temple, and he doesn't consider the usual criteria, and he doesn't train them even in remotely the same way. But I believe, y'all, the most incredible difference between Jesus' followers and the followers of a typical rabbi is just how diverse Jesus' disciples were. So I'm going to spend the rest of our time together highlighting this diversity because I believe 
I really believe it's the key to better understanding the mission of Jesus both then and now. Because here's the thing. Jesus loves unity, but I'm convinced he hates uniformity. Jesus loves unity, but he hates uniformity. We see this truth all throughout scripture, but Jesus' disciples may be the clearest example of it. So first, I want to look at the second half of the statement a little bit closer. You see, when we look at who he surrounded himself with, how he defied tradition and even broke religious rules to make sure his disciples were diverse, it becomes obvious that Jesus hates uniformity. Jesus' disciples were diverse in two major ways that we're going to look at. Their background and their beliefs. They were diverse in their background and their beliefs. So let's look at both of them. First, they were diverse in their background. We see this most clearly in the fact that Jesus had women as his disciples, closest friends and followers. To help us understand just how radical this piece of diversity was, let me tell you a little bit about what it was like to be a woman in the first century. This culture was a totalitarian patriarchy, which is basically just a fancy way of saying that men ruled everything. That meant that Jewish women were not permitted to receive any traditional education. They were trained in how to raise children and tend to household chores, but basically nothing outside of that. It also meant that women were mostly excluded from worshiping God at the temple. You see, there was a special place called the women's court where they were allowed to go, but they couldn't go any farther into the temple than that. Even local synagogues had separate places where women were allowed to worship. Men were always closer kind of to the action to where the real worship took place. Women also had no voice in who they would marry. Her father chose her husband and the two of them would negotiate the terms of the marriage, most of which were purely financial. Also, this was usually done when she was 13 or 14 years old. Women at this point were literally only worth 2% of what a man was worth. According to the Talmud, which is the central text of rabbinic Judaism, 100 women were equal to two men. 100 women were equal to two men. Lastly, women had no legal rights. They couldn't hold political office. They couldn't give testimony in court. They couldn't vote in elections. There was this second century Roman lawyer and legal expert named Gaius who wrote all about how this patriarchy worked in his famous book called Institutes. Here's what he said. The public law of Rome did not recognize women at all. Women were answerable for their misdeeds to the family judge, the father or the husband. You see, men were punished by the state, but the women had to be given over to the private jurisdiction of the family. It should be noted that nothing can be granted in the way of justice to those under power, i.e. slaves, children, and wives. For it is reasonable to conclude that since these persons can own no property, they are incompetent to claim anything in point of law. Gaius is saying that slaves, children, and women were unable to make any legal claim. They were the property of the husband or the father. And this patriarch, the husband or the father, was given free reign to be the judge, jury, and even sometimes the executioner of women. 
Gaius documented cases of husbands legally executing their wives for everything from infidelity to drinking wine without permission. Women were not people in this society. They were possessions. And as possessions, they existed solely to benefit the men who owned them. So after hearing all of that, it probably goes without saying that women were not ever recruited by rabbis to be apprentices. Author and scholar Frank Viola puts it this way. Every rabbi in that day had only male disciples. Jesus was the exception. He welcomed women to be his disciples also. Luke used his shorthand phrase for them, the women, the same way he used the 12. They were the Lord's disciples also, the female counterpart to the 12. One more quick thing about female disciples, and I, I really hope this doesn't offend anyone. Actually, I don't, I don't care that much. It can offend people. The women were objectively more faithful disciples than the men. And I'm not sure it's even close. When Jesus was taken to be executed on the cross, 11 of the 12 men abandoned him in fear. But the women were there. They stayed. They watched him. They were with him as he died. When Jesus's body was buried, the women were the first ones there to visit his grave. The men stopped following him after he died, but the women faithfully stayed. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the men were still in hiding. So Jesus gave the women the vitally important job of announcing his resurrection. Why? Because when the men walked away, the women faithfully stayed. So that's the first one. Jesus's disciples were diverse in gender, radically diverse, like the world had never seen it before. But their backgrounds were also diverse in age. The youngest was probably no more than 15 or 16 years old, but others like Peter, we know, already had a family and were probably much older. They were diverse in class and education. Some of the disciples were low-class peasants, some were middle-class merchants, and others were wealthy and used their wealth actually to fund Jesus' ministry. They were also diverse in occupation. Some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, some were former disciples of John the Baptist, and some even worked for a radical organization called Zealots, who actively tried to undermine Rome, which is a perfect segue to the other part of their diversity. They were diverse in their background, but they were also very diverse in their beliefs. This is best highlighted by Matthew and Joanna, on one side, and then Simon, Jude, and Judas on the other side. If you joined us last Sunday, you know that Matthew was a tax collector. And Jewish tax collectors like Matthew, they worked for the occupying Roman government. The Jewish people viewed tax collecting as stealing money from their own people and giving it to the enemy. But you see, Matthew was not just an ordinary tax collector. He was called a custom house official which meant that he actually oversaw and employed all of the tax collectors in that region. So essentially what would happen is Rome would sell tax collecting rights in any given area to the highest bidder. The contract would stipulate that a certain amount had to come back to Rome, but the contract holder, this custom house official, could keep anything else for himself. This is who Matthew was. He ran a highly profitable organization of a ruthless and unregulated industry. Like far too many modern businessmen, he made tons of money off exploiting people for economic gain. 
To say that Matthew was cozy with the ruling elite is a vast understatement. But he is nothing compared to Joanna. You see, Joanna's husband ran the household for Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, the one that ruled over Galilee at the time. This is the same place where Jesus grew up and spent most of his life, where he is recruiting his disciples. Herod is the one who would eventually execute John the Baptist and had a role in executing Jesus too. Joanna's husband ran his household, which means he oversaw all of the affairs of one of the most powerful men in that part of the world. Talk about being cozy with the ruling elite. Matthew and Joanna believed in how the Romans were leading. They believed the best way to live their lives was in cooperation with the Romans. But Jude, Judas, and Simon believed the exact opposite. They were Jewish nationalists. And at least Simon belonged to this radical nationalist group called the Zealots. They, were, they so objected to Roman rule that they became violent in order to overthrow them. Zealots were famous for carrying these long blades in their robes just in case they came across a Roman or even a Roman sympathizer. And if they caught them alone, it would pull out that blade and they would kill them in the streets. Can you imagine sitting around a table with Matthew, Joanna, Jude, Judas, and Simon? Jesus probably would have had to pull the zealots aside beforehand to confiscate their knives, right? Be like, hey, you can't really bring these to dinner tonight because there are going to be some people that you might not like there with you. He might have even thought about asking Matthew, hey, can you cover the cost of this dinner? You've been stealing from everyone for so long. Maybe you could cover the cost of the dinner. That would go a long way with the zealots. They may not kill you if you do that. It's just crazy. These belief differences are so deep, so intense, that most of us cannot even imagine them. Most of us can't even imagine having a civil conversation with somebody who's going to vote differently from us. But think of what this was like. So these beliefs differences, the ones we just talked about, they're the most easily seen, but there are others as well. They believe differently regarding social issues, politics, religion, and so on. The point is that these men and women came from massively different backgrounds and brought radically different beliefs with them into Jesus's service. They were incredibly diverse. They were anything but uniform. And yet we know that they came together in unity. How is that possible? Well, the answer to that question, I believe is massively important for the church today. Like the disciples in the first century, we are incredibly diverse in background and belief. And we have tried to remedy that diversity by just dividing up. We have divided into over 40,000 Christian denominations. We have divided into hundreds of thousands of churches in America alone so that we wouldn't have to face our differences on a weekly basis. Instead of living into the diversity, we divide up into little factions where we can all be uniform. But Jesus hates uniformity. His heart for the church is unity, not uniformity. If we want to pursue Jesus' heart for diversity in the church, we must replace homogenous uniformity with diverse unity. 
If we want to pursue Jesus' heart for the church, we must replace homogenous uniformity with diverse unity. How do we do that? The key to achieving diverse unity is looking back at the example of the disciples. Because you see, even though the disciples came in with radically diverse backgrounds and beliefs, Jesus didn't ask them to forget all their backgrounds. He didn't ask them to forsake all their beliefs, but he did ask them to do one very important thing. He asked them to reorder their loyalty. He asked them, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter where they came from, to reorder their loyalty. Jesus called his disciples to put their love for him and their pursuit of God's kingdom before everything else. You see, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, this is what he said. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first thing he taught him how to pray. And he said, pray that, you, that God's kingdom is done. Not that your kingdom is done or that Rome's kingdom is done or that Israel's kingdom is done, but that God's kingdom is done. He reordered their loyalty. He goes on that same time of teaching to say, seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. He reordered their loyalty. Seek first the kingdom of God. Instead of asking, what would a woman do? Or what would a wealthy person do? Or what would a fisherman or a tax collector do? They started asking, what would a follower of Jesus do? Instead of asking, would this be best for Rome? Or would this be best for Israel? They started asking, would this be best for the kingdom of God? And that reordering of their loyalty changed everything. This is the key to replacing uniformity with unity. We must reorder our loyalty. So instead of asking, what would a white person do? Or what would a straight person do? Or what would a teacher do? Or a nurse do? We need to start asking, what would a follower of Jesus do? First and foremost. Instead of asking, would this be best for America? Or would this be best for Austin? Or would this be best for Republicans or Democrats? We need to start asking, would this be best for the kingdom of God? God wants us to bring our full selves into our faith. Our demographics, our experiences, our passions, and our abilities. But one major thing must change. Our loyalty. Jesus and his kingdom must become the lens through which we see and evaluate everything else. Think about what would happen if the church did this. We would go from the most segregated hour in America, as Dr. King said, to the most diverse group of people in the world. Because when our loyalty changes, we become unified. Not uniform, but unified. Diversity is one of our core values here at Restore. We believe that God has made all of us different, but he has made all of us valuable. We believe that the church works best when we embrace and empower the differences around us. Now, we didn't prayerfully select diversity as a core value because it's trendy or because it's politically correct. We chose it because the scripture is filled with examples of how diverse God's family is and how we are truly better when we are all together. Here at Restore, we are different. 
in race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, education, ability, struggles, shortcomings, personalities, and passions. And just like Jesus did with his disciples, we truly believe that our diversity is something to be embraced and empowered because we are most like the church Jesus calls us to be when we bring our full selves to the table. But we must reorder our loyalty when we do. We must unite together around a shared loyalty to Jesus and to his kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text this morning. Thank you for the incredible diversity of your disciples. How cool is it? God, that we get to read about that, that we get to learn about that, that we get to see you breaking rules and committing social faux pas to make your team the most diverse that the world had ever seen up until that point. Thank you for leading that way. But thank you for calling us to something higher. Thank you for reordering our loyalties, God. I pray that we would do that each and every day. And we were tempted to reorder our loyalties back and put some part of our background or our beliefs back in that driver's seat, God, that you would gently remind us that our loyalty must be to you and to your kingdom first and foremost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, hopefully that message got you thinking about what reordering needs to happen in your life. And I bet there was even a part of it that you started thinking about the election we have upcoming. See, one week from Tuesday, we elect not just a president, but down-ballot races as well all over this country, state, and our cities and counties. And this is an important time. It's an important election, as they all are. And I know that so many of you have been asking how a Christian should vote. I know because you've asked me that. A lot of you have been asking who a Christian should vote for. And I don't believe that it's my job, that it's our job to tell you who to vote for. But I do believe it is my job to look into the scriptures and talk about how a Christian should vote. So next Sunday, one week from today, we are doing a special message called How a Christian Should Vote. We're going to look at how a Christian should not just vote in this election, but how a Christian should vote in general. How a Christian should engage politically because I believe that far too many of us have misordered our loyalties here. We've either become so loyalty to, to partisan politics or to a party itself that we have neglected the kingdom of God or we've just decided to totally disengage from politics altogether. Neither of those are, I believe, correct or biblical or what Jesus wants us to do. So next week, we're gonna talk about how a Christian should vote, how we even see our vote. So I hope you join us for that. It's going to be an awesome, awesome Sunday.